William Wordsworth, and Tintern Abbey. Living from 1770 to 1850, Wordsworth was one of the few Romantic poets to live a good long life, long enough to become much more conservative politically and even to become poet laureate, so he'd lost most of his Romantic street cred by then, though he was still very popular. He visited France in 1790 and then again in 1791 and 92 during the Revolution, where he had an affair with a woman named Annette Vallon. She had a daughter to him in 1792. In 1797, Wordsworth met Coleridge and lived, along with his sister Dorothy, near Coleridge in the Lake District. Wordsworth and Coleridge collaborated on the Lyrical Ballads in 1798, published anonymously in its first edition. The second edition of 1800 included Wordsworth's famous preface, which outlined his theories of poetry. Wordsworth's autobiographical poem, The Prelude, or Growth of a Poet's Mind, was written throughout his life. A two-part version was completed in 1799, a complete version from 1805, and the original published version continuously revised and published posthumously in 1850. The 1805 version was first published in 1926, and there is something of an ongoing debate among scholars, some of them preferring the 1805 version as being closer to the original Romantic vision, and others preferring the 1850 version as more polished. Wordsworth illustrates the problems of literary periods. We have mentioned before that literary periods are rather arbitrary, and here is a good example of that problem. Wordsworth's prelude, a milestone of Romantic poetry, is published in 1850. Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam A.H.H., considered a milestone of the Victorian period, is also published in the same year, 1850. A few comments about some of Wordsworth's shorter poems before we turn to Tintern Abbey. The poem We Are Seven is written in the form of a dialogue between an innocent eight-year-old child and an experienced adult. So you can already see that this is somewhat Blakeian in its theme of innocence versus experience. It features two opposing views of life, death, and family, and the two individuals in the poem have a conversation on these topics. Interestingly, neither of them convinces the other. The poem doesn't settle the issue, which probably makes the poem even more reminiscent of William Blake's concept of contraries. Two more famous examples of Wordsworth's shorter poems are two of the so-called conversation poems, Expostulation and Reply, and The Tables Turned. These poems are also in the form of dialogue. Notice the claim in Expostulation and reply that bodies and minds are in tune with the forces and wisdom of nature. The poem hints at seeing and knowing on a deeper level, and even dreaming is productive here. In that aspect, we might think about this poem and consider the views of Percy Shelley in Mont Blanc, how they might be similar and how they might be different. 
The Tables Turned is another poem posing the opposition between books and nature. Here, the contrast between books and nature is more explicit. Nature has more wisdom if we can listen and learn. It's spontaneous wisdom. It doesn't misshape things like our mind does. There is a great line, we murder to dissect. In other words, we take things apart and destroy them in an attempt to understand them better. The influence of nature can be seen even more clearly in Wordsworth's famous poem, Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798. Usually, the poem is just referred to as Tintern Abbey. This is a poem of profound thought expressed in very simple language, often one- and two-syllable words. Wordsworth has made two trips to the ruined abbey, in 1793 alone, and now again in 1798, this time with his sister Dorothy. What is interesting about the poem is the way that the past perception of the scene is placed alongside the present, and the poem projects ahead to the future as well. So we have three different timescapes, with the past and present overlaid upon each other, along with a projection into the future. Notice the way that the scene has affected the speaker in the intervening years. Similarly, this present pleasure is food for future years. We might compare this to the brief Spots of Time passage in Book 11 of the Prelude, 1850 version. Let me read just a few lines from that passage in the Prelude. There are in our existence spots of time that with distinct preeminence remain a renovating virtue whence, depressed by false opinion and contentious thought, or aught of heavier or more deadly weight, in trivial occupations and the round of ordinary intercourse, our minds are nourished and invisibly repaired, a virtue by which pleasure is enhanced, that penetrates, enables us to mount when high, more high, and lifts us up when fallen. End quote. So let's take a look now at some lines from Tintern Abbey. The beginning of the poem gives us the scenario. Five years have passed, five summers with the length of five long winters, and again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs which on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. The day has come when I again repose here under this dark sycamore and view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which at this season with their unripe fruits among the woods and copses lose themselves, nor with their green and simple hue disturb the wild green landscape. Once again, I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, end quote. And so on. Notice the number of times that the speaker of the poem says, once again. A few lines later, around line 23, he says, Though absent long, these forms of beauty have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye. 
But oft in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet felt in the blood and felt along the heart and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure such, perhaps, as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. End quote. Let's stop there for a moment. This passage explains the poet's feelings about the function of the landscape, even in memory, which is able not only to nourish him and uplift him, but even influences his little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and of love. So there is a benevolent influence of the landscape. Going on, nor less, I trust, to them I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burthen of the mystery in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. End quote. I might add that this entire passage of 15 lines from Nor Less I Trust to We See Into the Life of Things is a single sentence. This is also a good example of the poet's ability to express profound concepts in simple one- and two-syllable words. If this be but a vain belief, yet, off, yet oh how oft in darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how oft in spirit have I turned to thee, O Sylvan, why? Thou wanderer through the wood, how often has my spirit turned to thee? In other words, the consolation of the memory of this landscape has even affected the beating of his heart. And now, with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions dim and faint and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again. One critic, Harold Bloom, remarks that that reference to the sad perplexity marks the beginning of the, quote, dark undersong, unquote, of the poem. While here I stand not only with the sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that in the moment there is life and food for future years. So here's the speaker's reference to the anticipation of the future. He knows that seeing the landscape now is going to similarly uplift him in the future as it has done in the intervening five years. Now there is a rather fascinating passage in which he contrasts his present state of mind to his earlier state of mind when he first visited the landscape. And once again we see this Blakean dialectic between innocence and experience. And so I dare to hope 
though changed, no doubt, from what I was when first I came among these hills, when, like a row, I bounded over the mountains by the sides of the deep rivers and the lonely streams wherever nature led, more like a man flying from something that he dreads than one who sought the thing he loved. For nature then, the coarser pleasures of my boyish days and their glad animal movements all gone by, to me was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling, and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied or any interest unborrowed from the eye. That time is past, and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint I, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe, abundant recompense. For I have learned to look on nature not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing sometimes, oftentimes, the still, sad music of humanity. Nor harsh, nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue, and I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. I'll stop there for a moment after that rather long passage that really explores the feelings of loss that he experiences. He is aware that he cannot be what he was before when he says, I cannot paint what then I was, that time is past, and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. The dizzy raptures of youth, we might say. And yet, while he is aware of the loss, he understands that he has a compensation. Not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed for such loss, I would believe, abundant recompense. And he goes on to say, For I have learned to look on nature not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity. So the landscape has this power to warm him toward humanity. It is a generalized reference to social issues, and these have been awakened in him in the meantime. And again we see these simple one- and two-syllable words, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. That passage might also be a good one to compare to a similar thought that we saw in Shelley's Mont Blanc. In the next section of the poem, beginning a few lines later, we first perceive that Dorothy is with him the first time that he has mentioned her. This always seemed to come to me as a shock because the poem up to this point feels like a very personal and private recollection. We might have assumed he was alone. 
nor perchance if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay, for thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river, thou my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, and in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart, and I read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes." Dorothy Wordsworth had a very close relationship with her brother, and he makes several references in his poetry to her wild eyes. What he is saying here is that Dorothy is experiencing Tintern Abbey for the first time, just as he did five years ago. He is able to look at her and see something of himself in her first experience. Somewhat later, He expresses a thought that some critics have seen as a sort of colonization of her mind and memory. He says around line 135, Therefore, let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee, and in after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, Thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies. Oh, then, if solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me? And these my exhortations. Nor perchance if I should be where I can no more hear thy voice, nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence, wilt thou then forget that on the banks of this delightful stream we stood together, and that I, so long a worshipper of nature, hither came, unwearied in that service, rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love, Nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear, both for themselves and for thy sake. The reason critics have sometimes made that comment about William colonizing Dorothy's mind is that what the poet seems to be doing here is defining Dorothy's future experience. Because he himself has had these two perceptions of this place and identifies her first visit with his first visit, he seems to be saying that if she comes back here again, perhaps after he is dead and gone, that she will have the same kind of doubled vision that he has had. Because it has been such a profound experience for him, he assumes that it must be so for her. What is especially interesting about this poem is the way that Wordsworth works with time and memory and is able to layer the past, present, and future in such a complex and fascinating way.